Hi, my name is Rhonda Carlson. Our first reading is from the book of 1 John, chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The word of the Lord. Dear God, we thank you for your word and again for the Apostle John and his, his dear love of the churches he sent this letter to that they would know the truth and be set free. And we pray for Derek as he has prepared and prayed for us, even though he doesn't know us that well, to bring your word. You'd watch over and anoint him. We do lift up our children who have just left and our friends from Chile who've had a very long set of travel and all of the rest of us who are here eager to know you. And pray you would meet with us in this space and time. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Derek. I'm a pastor, but I'm not one of the pastors here at Christ Church Vienna. Thanks a lot, Dean, for that introduction. I want to start by just reminding us that we, we, we're in a series this summer working through the epistles of John. And two weeks ago, Dean talked about what it means to walk in the light, did a masterful job of introducing us to Ephesians and unpacking 1 John chapter 1. Last week, we explored the idea of what it means to live as genuine believers and what that looks like. And this week, we're going to explore the idea of how do we become a people who abide in truth. Um, Dean mentioned that I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Most recently, I've been a Presbyterian pastor at uh, a church there, a third church in Richmond, Virginia. But before that, I spent 13 years on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at UVA. And um, at one of our student conferences that I was speaking at, at the end of the conference, uh, as we're saying goodbye to students and it's wrapping up, a student named Alex came up to me. He was from VCU. And he said, Derek, I've got 60 seconds, and I want to ask you a question before we go to the buses. And I was like, okay, sure, yeah, 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 tell tell me, what's your question? He goes, okay, so basically, I believe that our bodies don't matter, that all that matters is the spiritual world and my spirit. So can you tell me how, what you talked about this weekend at the conference fits in with that? 
And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I have 45 seconds to tell this kid he is a heretic. <laughs> How am I going to do this? And so uh, I, this is what I did. I put my hand on Alex's shoulder and I said, um, I'm going to extend trust to you that you've not earned yet. <laughs> Could you extend trust to me that I've not earned yet? Can I speak to you like you're a student that I've loved for years? And he said, sure, go ahead. And I said, everything that you just said is wrong. <laughs> it's actually a heresy called Gnosticism. And him and his friend started laughing at me like, he goes, are you calling me a heretic? And I said, sort of, I kind of am. And so he said, no, that, that's good to know. So then, then he's, I'm going to go get my bus now. That was my, my interaction <laughs> with Alex. So you can't drop the heresy bomb in someone's lap and not take responsibility for it, right? So, so I gave him my phone number. We started talking. Uh, it turns out years later, uh, Alex came on staff with InterVarsity. He interned at UVA, and he, uh, he got me back, actually. So when, when, when we introduced our interns to the whole region at Regional Staff Conference, you're in a room with like 70 or 80 staff. My bosses are in the room, and we, we introduced all of our new interns to all the staff. And Alex get up there, and, and he's talking about his journey to staff. He goes, well, my journey to staff started pretty rough. And I was like, well, look, look why? What, what was the case? Well, the first time I met Derek... He called me a heretic, <laughs> and that's how it started. So Alex is, Alex is doing great. He's a phenomenal staff. Um, six years ago, converted to Anglicanism, so you know that he is doing perfectly fine, right? Everything is fine with him. Now, Alex, Alex was incredible, and um, I, I love that story because, one, it's funny, absolutely sure, but there's something actually very uh, relevant in my interaction with Alex, that, that applies to our text that we're looking at today. Alex was an incredible kid. <laughs> he is smart, sweet, he's a new Christian. But even then, there were forces in his life that sought to deny the fundamental realities about who Jesus was, about his body, who he was, and about this world that God had made. That's the same situation. The situation that Alex is in is the same situation that the first century Christians that are reading John's letter find themselves in. And the passage we're looking at today is really honing in to answer this, this one question. How can we be a people who abide in the truth? Or Alex would say, how, could, how to not be a heretic, <laughs> right? How do we become a people who abide in truth? There's four things I want us to, uh, to pull from the text this morning to help us flesh that out. Um, the first is that we recognize that we are in the last hour. Whoever's doing the slides can, can move them if you got them. Well, not yet. Not that one. That's great. You can move back. There we go. <laughs> first, we, we need to recognize that we're in the last hour. John uh, begins our passage by saying and abruptly announcing, this is the last hour. W what does that mean? Understanding what he understood about time is important. The last hour was likely a shorthand that John used for another phrase that you sometimes hear in the New Testament called the last days. Right? This is the, the apostles believed that they were in the last period of human history and that the return of Jesus was close. Um, have any of you ever heard of the doomsday clock? Do you know what that is? You can advance the slide. The Doomsday Clock was, it was originally created by an international group of scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. And the Doomsday Clock, it represents the likelihood of a human-made global catastrophe. And so on the clock, midnight represents total annihilation. And the, the worse things get, the closer we get to midnight. Uh, January 24th, uh, 2023, 
they, uh, they actually, the, the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the hands of the doomsday clock ever closer to 90 seconds to midnight. The closest we've ever been to global catastrophe in, in, in its history. Um, it's kind of like the, the doomsday clock. John is saying that as God keeps time, now is the last hour. Right? Midnight is here. And how do we know that midnight is here? Well, he tells us because the Antichrists have come. Now, Antichrist is a word that only exists in John letters. And sometimes when we think of the word Antichrist, we think of someone who, uh, who de- claims and declares that they are Jesus themselves. But really in the New Testament, what we see is that, that Antichrists are false teachers who claim to have a, a kind of special knowledge that's opposed to the teachings about Jesus. So what do we know about these antichrists from this passage? It's amazing uh, how much we can know about their identities and what John says about them. First, we know that they belonged to the community of faith. They had once been members of the church that John was writing to. These antichrists were people that had belonged to Christian community. The text says that they were sent out from us. They left, went out from us. They were of us, verse 19. They were fam, as my kids would say, right? They were family. And and I remember when I first read that, that that it just surprised me. I'm, I'm so often thinking about the forces outside of the church that threaten to take us away from the heart of Jesus. And this text is telling us that they came from within. These antichrists belonged But, John says, they did not abide. They did not continue. They were of us, but not of us, he says. And if they had been of us, they would have continued. That word continued is a word you're going to hear six or seven times. It's the word meno. It's translated abide almost every other time in our passage. That word means to endure, to remain And so this is a group of people who, having been a part of the community of faith, have withdrawn from the church and and, and fellowship, and now they are trying to persuade and bring the rest of the church with them. This isn't just some intellectual exercise. This is is relationship, right? Uh, The bonds of fellowship, the bonds of family were broken. Uh, Just like the recipients of John's letter, we too live in the last hour. We have always been living in the last hour. And one of my challenges us today is that if you don't believe you live in the last hour, that might be one of the scariest places to be as a Christian. What I, what I want you to realize is that a part of what John's saying here, forces are always pulling and pushing at your life, forming you, shaping us, right? We are always being discipled. We are always being catechized. The, the, the question is simply toward whom or toward what? Are we being formed towards Jesus and his likeness? Or are we being formed towards something else? So the first thing that we glean from this text is, is, is that we must recognize that we are in the last hour. The second is this. You can move the slide forward. We, should, we also must know our enemy. So this is the second thing that, that, that uh, John tells us about what it means to be a people that abide in truth. He begins this next section with a brief encouragement to his audience. And I I get a sense in the room, (laughs) 
And the first time that I read through this passage, I needed some encouragement at this point, right? The last hour is heavy stuff. And so John goes on to say, I'm not talking about you guys. I'm not saying that you guys are heretics. Well, maybe you guys. No, he didn't do that. No, no. He's like, none of you are heretics. Why? You live in the truth. You are of the truth. But you know, you know who is the best liar? The Antichrist. Because he is the one who lies about Jesus. And what John is saying is, I'm writing so that you might know your enemy. And the Antichrist does not come from truth. He tries to deceive, verse 26. And there's a specific falsehood that is characterized by the Antichrist in this passage that John is speaking directly to. And it is this. It is the denial of Jesus as the Christ. And what does that mean? I think, I think Dean did a good job on the first sermon he preached in this series of unpacking a little bit of this. Specifically, the denial that, was, that, that this ch- church was facing was the denial that Jesus ever came in the flesh. It was the denial of the incarnation, the incarnate Son of God. In their view, they believed that, that the Christ was just this heavenly spiritual being, and he did not suffer, he did not die, he did not shed his blood to be our Savior. And at the heart of what they believe really rejected everything that kind of makes Jesus Jesus, right? The incarnation, the resurrection of the body, the renewal of the, the created order and all the cosmos. The, the Antichrist denies the identity and the lordship of Christ. They also believed that, that you did not have to receive or know Jesus as the son of God in order to have knowledge about God. They believed it was possible you could live without sin. I'm listening. <laughs> that you could live without sin. That, that you had no need for the Christian doctrine of forgiveness. It was a Christianity without repentance, without lament, without suffering, without atonement. One of my favorite uh, commentators that I read said this, the Christianity or the faith that they offered was a Christianity without tears. Isn't that great? A Christianity without tears. And John's also saying, I'm writing so that you know that what's at stake, right? He goes on to say, he uses some Trinitarian mathematics, which John does sometimes. He'll say, he says, you cannot deny the Son and have the Father. If you confess the Son, you also have the Father. If you deny the Son, then you deny the Father. And what he's saying there is this. He's saying to the, to the Antichrists, this is not how any of this works. That to deny Jesus is to deny everything that is at the root and the heart of Christianity. And so he, he deceives, and the, the Antichrist seeks to deny the identity and the lordship of Jesus. And that means that the spirit of the Antichrist moves and works in our lives in order to distort our understanding of, uh, and, and knowledge and experience of who Christ is. But for, for, for those of us who live now 2,000 plus years into church history, I, I, want, I want to say that it is very unlikely that someone is going to confront you directly <laughs> with ideologies that are going to ask you to deny that Jesus was the Son of God, right? No, no, nobody's going to come up to you and say, do you deny the Christ? And you're going to say, yes, that's not going to be something you ever experience. However, what we will experience is something called gospel drift. And this, this is what I mean by this, that, that, that our lives are littered with a thousand unchecked heresies, <laughs> And, um, and if we look close enough that we, we can see them, that we find them in statements like, I can do this on my own. I don't need other people, right? That's a heresy. You were created for community because God's community. 
God is not going to come through for us. We've done everything that he's asked us to do and he has not shown up. It's not true. God doesn't love me. Heresy. There are a thousand of these and these, these nibble at the edges of our lives. One of the ones that I, I've experienced most uh, as a pastor, I remember once I was working at a church or with a church where one of our leadership teams had, um, had just made a, a, bad, a bad mistake and it hurt some people. It wasn't, it wasn't a catastrophic mistake, thankfully, but, but people were hurt. And, and, and um, this family came to the session to, to tell us how we had hurt them. And when they left, the spirit of the room said, basically, I don't know why these people are upset. What we did is a basic practice in the business world. That's gospel drift. We weren't operating in the business world. <laughs> We're shepherds, not board members. We're elders. Anytime we adopt a set of values or ideas or a way of thinking that justifies decisions that we make, that we know are contrary to the way of Jesus, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in us. This is, this is gospel drift. It's by a, a thousand small justified denials. And we can find ourselves over time believing a gospel that is no gospel at all. And so I think it's easy to set this aside and say, well, uh, Antichrist is not a real thing. The spirit of the Antichrist is real. And the, the second thing that John tells us is that if we want to be a place that abides in truth, we have to know our enemy. You guys with me? Good. The, the third thing that we pull out of the text is this. You know, if, if gospel drift is real, how do we avoid gospel drift? And this is how John ends his text. Two things he says to us. First, you abide in the gospel. Now, there are two times in the passage he says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. And he says, again, if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you. That phrase for John, what you heard in the beginning, is a shorthand for the gospel of Jesus as it was preached through the apostles, right? And so what, what John is saying here is it's not enough to have once in the past, merely heard the gospel and uh, agreed to it or ascended to it, uh, assent to it, that this is what he's saying, that the message of the gospel is something that must be active and present continually in the life of believers. And he, he speaks to a fundamental reality of Christian life when he talks about this. And it's this, no one graduates from the gospel. Nobody there is no time in your life where you acquire so much theological knowledge that you will move past the gospel. The gospel is not the gate into the Christian life. It is the path. It is the way. It is the whole thing. That's what John's saying. Stanley Harwas, uh, one of the greatest eth ethicists, Christian ethics of, of the last century, he said it this way, Jesus refuses to allow us to abstract our knowing from our living. The gospel is not information. It is a way of life. Yes and amen. John, John, John moves on to say even more beautiful things to us. He says, well, if the gospel is a way of life, if it abides in you, then you will abide in the Father and in Jesus the Son. If you remain in this gospel, you will abide in God himself and in Jesus' life itself. 
Remain, this word abide, which translate often remain, is so deliberate that when we confess Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, and we, we live in and embrace that confession, it leads us into relationship. This is beautiful. John's saying that the end of Christian doctrine is relationship. Truth for the Christian is always relational. Never ideas abstracted from a, a relationship with God. And so this is, this is so beautiful. He said, this is actually the promise of eternal life. This is what Jesus has always been promising us, that if the gospel abides in us, then we will abide in the very life of God forever. It's beautiful. So the way to salvation is, is to abide in the gospel itself. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we cultivate lives that abide in the gospel? I'll, I'll, I'll say this, the, the most important thing that, that you can do, any of us can do, as parents, as spouses, as leaders, as friends, the most important thing you can do to do this is to, is to create spaces and opportunities that, that are saturated by the gospel. I mean, not just, not just the gospel truths that you can hear and, and, and recite, but that you things you can feel and touch and understand. The gospel made live in your midst, in your relationships. And one of the, one of the you know, if I had to pick one thing in this season of the life of the church, if, if we want to cultivate uh, communities that are saturated in the gospel, then I want to talk about this idea of rupture and repair. And what it, what it really means is this, that, that we become communities of actual repentance, where the gospel is alive. Um, I don't know if you know, but we just went through a global pandemic. Do you guys remember that? That was just a hot minute ago. Okay. Like, I still have some PTSD. Um, it was a particularly hard time for my family. Extremely difficult. Not everybody experienced the pandemic that way. I'm a pastor, I was a pastor of a large church in Richmond, and... Um, there were some people that were crushing it during the pandemic. They, they enjoyed the beginning of the pandemic. I can tell you who they are. They were introverted, uh, empty nesters. They, like, they, every time I would meet with one, they would say, Derek, I, I can't say this in public, but um, I'm kind of like this. Like, I don't have to make up excuses to not be with people anymore. And I'm sitting across them going, what is happening right now? Like, I feel like, I feel like I'm about to lose my mind. But, but they, they experienced it very, very differently. Now, let me tell you who was not crushing the pandemic. The Mondus. Okay, so our family, we were not crushing the pandemic. It was very hard on both of our sons. It was very hard on us. We had se- the first seven months were just about a nightmare. And, and then I lost my job. And then my son's school burned down. Yeah, yeah, you can, that's, that's, it felt like the last hour, okay? <laughs> it, felt, it felt like I was in the last hour. In the midst of that, um, my wife and I got this phenomenal opportunity to do a counseling session with a guy named Adam Young. And ended up bringing Adam to, uh, and working with him, bringing him to, to Richmond. But he's, a, he's a Christian counselor, and uh, he has a great podcast called uh, The Place We Find Ourselves. And, um, and so we... We go to this counseling meeting with them. It's on Zoom, which is like, oh, God, Zoom. Um, but it, it, is, it was so life-giving, and it was on rupture and repair. And this is what he said. I, I knew he was hitting a deep part of my soul when he just said this, this phrase, a phrase that I believed already. 
He said, your job as a parent is not to stop ruptures in your family. And I realized I, I had gotten to that place, gospel drift. I believed it was my, I was trying to act like God over our family. Like no more problems for anybody, okay? We, can only, we can't handle one more thing falling apart, <laughs> you know? And so we've got to keep it all together. And when he said that, I just started bawling. And um, yeah, he, said, he said, your job is not to stop ruptures from happening. That is impossible. Like there is no healthy person in counseling, in pastoral ministry. Nobody who knows relationships will tell you your job is to avoid ruptures. Because your job is to move towards those you have ruptures with and repair them in the gospel. And you know, you know he said how we do that? We do that through repentance. Leading in repentance. I love that there's this, there's this phrase he said. I, I, don't, I don't know if I captured it perfectly, but he gives this. He says, repentance is a gift from your father. And what do we do with gifts? We open them and we play with them. Isn't that beautiful? Like the idea that we could be such a gospel-saturated community, a small group, your discipleship groups, your friendships, that they could be places where we learn to play with repentance, where the gospel is real, real, where we can share our real lives in vulnerability with each other, to be lovingly challenged and challenged and, and encourage the kind of depth of, of community and relationship, it, it's the life of God. And that's why people are attracted to it. Repentance is the place where, where both the identity and lordship of Jesus, the things the Antichrist wants to kill, it's where they exist, that's where Jesus meets us. Both of those things meet us in the work of repentance and repair. And so I don't know if I have a practical expression, but I will say that, that, let, that let that idea guide you and think creatively about your family, about your friendships, and about your spaces. What would it look like for us to create spaces where they're saturated by the gospel? The, the fourth and final thing that, um, that, that John tells us. So he, let's just review real quick. How do we become people who abide in truth? We need to know the hour, right? We know our enemy. Um, and the first, and, and, you know, real encouragement because is that we abide in the gospel. And the last is that we ab- abide in Christ, and in parentheses, through the Spirit. This is the last thing that he shares with his community and shares with us. There, there's something really gorgeous happening in this passage. So um, if you notice the... The, the, the Antichrist seeks to deny the, the nature of Jesus, right? And, and then what John tells us is, well, that destroys everything. <laughs> like the relationship with the Father is broken. So, so the Trinity is being distorted and disrupted, right? By the Antichrist seeking to distort our understanding and knowledge of Jesus. So in the Greek here, it's really beautiful. John is doing this creative thing where while he is telling the community of faith how bad this is and how much it breaks the Trinity, he brings the Trinity to bear in order to show us the truth. It's so, so beautiful. So he says, essentially, he ends this passage by saying, let the Spirit teach you once again how to abide in Jesus. So, so how, do we, how do we resist gospel drift? How do we become a church that abides in truth? You abide in the gospel and you let the Spirit of God teach you how to abide in Christ once again. So he says, uh, he says in our text, the spirit of Jesus abides in you. It's like the, the anointing of the Holy One. Well, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the spirit abides in you, 
Okay? He also says the spirit is trustworthy. Right? The spirit of the Antichrist, not trustworthy. But what the spirit is teaching you and sealing within you is something you can, you can count on. And it's the only teacher you really need. You've got an internal abiding teacher who can guide you into everything that you need to know about the gospel, everything that you need to know about Jesus. Now, John isn't saying that um, you shouldn't have any human teachers. He's writing a letter. He's actually teaching while he's writing to them. But what he's saying is this. There is no need for special knowledge, friends. There is no need for special knowledge. You know, we, I feel like, I, feel like I, I often search for new knowledge when I feel like there is a, I'm at this wall in my walk with Jesus or I'm in this place of suffering and, and despair and I'm looking for something new to understand. But what really John is saying to me and to us is that we don't need a new knowledge. What we need is a deeper intimacy with the things that we already know, a deeper intimacy with the one who is Christ that we already know. And so he says, let the Spirit teach you again how to abide in Christ. This is how to not be a heretic, (laughs) to to abide in the gospel and to abide in Jesus, to let the Spirit teach you how to abide in Christ. Um, I want to offer just one or two practical um, things that I've experienced that have helped me to what, what we're talking about here, abiding in Christ, we're talking about Union with Jesus, right? We're talking about intimacy with God. And so I want to talk about just two practices of union and communion that have um, meant a lot to me. And I want to encourage you, whatever you are trying to do, spiritual disciplines in your life, I want to encourage you to err on the side of intimacy, right? I, I used reading through the Bible every year, which I did for like the first seven years of my ministry, as a way to avoid intimacy with God. Like I could do the thing, no untended spaces where where the spirit could come in and just start messing with me. And then I met people like Dean and Joho, and they told me about these horrible things like retreat of silences and silent prayer and Lectio Divina and all these horrible disciplines (laughs) that the church has been doing for thousands of years that bring me into, they're not horrible in a good way, right? They bring us into the presence of God and the Spirit, and they, they fill that space. If, if your faith has been mostly information, I want to encourage you, you can learn how to abide in Christ by, by embracing some spiritual disciplines in your life. And I'm going to talk real quick about two. Um, the, the first is silent prayer. I mentioned it. It's really easy. The number one thing in my life where I can feel the Spirit of God is silent prayer. You just literally just sit for 15 minutes a day in silence, and you let God simply be. And you invite, just invite the Spirit to speak to you, to be with you, and then you just shut up, which I have a hard time doing. And it is incredible. I mean, the first week was, was so difficult. And then I just felt this, this, the closeness of the Spirit. Incredible. I, I never would have done that without the encouragement of, of people in life pushing me to find new ways to abide in Jesus. And the second thing I'll say is it's not one specific practice, but I just want to, I want to encourage you in your relationships, in your friendships, in your small groups, in your discipleship groups, whatever kind of community you are walking with to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you to do this. The groups I have worked with that have done this, it has been transformative. They have learned how to abide. I want you just to experiment. And every week when you guys leave your group, 
just agree to try one spiritual discipline that week. Just try it a couple of times, and all you got to do is report back on it the next time that you're together. Uh, Dean can help you with this. Uh, there's a book you can use called the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, which is just baller. It's incredible. It's amazing when it comes to this. Just pick one and start just trying it, and then share with your friends what you experience. That, sh- that sharing can be, that was stupid. <laughs> right? that, like sharing can be, that was hard and difficult. Okay, wh- why, wh- what do you think God was doing in that? Th- this, these, these two things, I mean, just, just silent prayer and then trying to find ways to incorporate disciplines of listening, disciplines of, of abiding into your relationships with others are incredible ways to do exactly what John's talking about. So, so to close, you know, we, we said John really is going after this one question and this, like, how do we become a community that abides in the truth? Well, well we know now, we, we know the hour, we know our enemy, but more than anything else, we abide in the gospel and we let the spirit teach us how to abide in Christ. I want to close just with the words from one of the songs that we sang earlier this morning. Thou of life, the fountain art, let me take of thee, spring up within my heart for all eternity. Those are words that define what it's like to abide in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. There is no one like you. There are no gods before you. You are the only one who is worth the weight of our whole lives. And so we say this morning, as your children, your little children together, we say, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you help us become a community that abides in the truth? Come, Holy Spirit. Would you teach us the gospel again? Come, Holy Spirit. Would you teach us how to abide in Jesus? Amen.